This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. What's happening with elections? This is a rather unusual circumstance that we have a provincial election, municipal election so close together. Uh, I know that we've had federal elections and municipal elections uh, in the same area in the same time frame in the past. Uh, but this, the very fact that there's an awful lot of issues that are actually under the purview of the province that are going to have an impact on what's going to happen in Hamilton makes this one kind of special. Joining us to talk about this is John Best, a publisher of the Bay Observer. John, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Pleasure to be with you, Bill. I don't know how many elections you've covered over the years uh, in various incarnations at CH, CH and, of course, the Bay Observer. And, uh, and, and I know it sounds a, a little bit like a cliche to suggest that this is one of the most important elections uh, that we're going to see, but I think it is simply because of the, I think, what's at stake here and, and what could be happening as a result, not just of what's going to happen municipally, but what's going to happen in the provincial election. What's the cliche? Now more than ever. There you go. There's another one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it, there, it's a, there's a real sense, uh, I think, in the air that it's a, it's a year of uh, certainly potential transition. Um, if we can, you know, the provincial polls hold up, and I suspect that they will tighten to some degree before the end of the race. And uh, sometimes the Conservatives, as we've seen in past elections, can not only tighten the race but blow it so uh it's early yet but uh yeah it it looks like the you know as they say the folks are restless out there you detect that in online commentary and letters to the editor and just the general buzz you get on the street that both at the provincial and maybe to a lesser degree at the municipal level there's uh there's some restlessness out there i mentioned on my commentary at 8 this morning that i understand what the polls say and uh, there seems to be some consistency there that the, the PCs have a, a significant lead at this stage. But I said the, the corollary to that is that those are among what they call committed voters. In other words, they've already made up their mind. And I've talked to an awful lot of people that haven't made up their mind yet. And I don't know where they're going, and neither do they at this point. Well, if we look at the last federal election, I mean, uh, we, we've generally written off uh, the younger cohort, uh, millennials, people that don't use landlines, all of those kind of things. Uh, as as a as a cohort that that frankly uh, votes in uh, very you know small numbers relative to the rest of the population and and then you have the added problem that you know voting overall is lower uh, just the whole participation level is is uh, continues to shrink but uh, having said that um, if uh, you know if you look at Trudeau in in 2015 he did for that one brief moment managed to capture the imagination of a lot of younger people who typically weren't as interested in federal politics and as a result he got himself a pretty uh, handsome majority I, i'm not so sure that's going to happen provincially I, I don't want to talk about that in a couple of seconds i also want to get into uh, some of the campaigning that's going on but before i do that we, we talked initially about talking about you know the municipal uh, candidacies and, and some of the people who may be running and, and some of the incumbents who are going to be challenged here. But before I get to that, Joe, what's up with this Twitter thing between the mayor and, and Donna Skelly? I, I've seen this in the last couple of hours this morning. Uh, it, it seems as if, well, this is based on some comments that, uh, that Councillor Skelly made about LRT, and a few people have taken exception to it, and the mayor seems to have jumped into the fray. Yeah, um, uh, it, looking at the thread, uh, it appears that uh, someone posted a, a Twitter, a citizen posted a Twitter that was more of a question than anything else, just asking, you know, why is Donna Skelly opposed to LRT? And then uh, the mayor jumped in with a 
with a pretty strong thing, saying she's not entitled to speak on behalf of counsel, uh, not that I'm aware that she ever has claimed to be speaking on behalf of counsel, and and talking about the 10-5 vote, and, uh, you know, I would suggest that... Uh, clinging to that to suggest that that 10-5 vote is solid or in any way chiseled in stone it, it's no more solid than it was the night before the vote was taken uh, if anything it's shakier because uh, with Doug Ford's comments about uh, allowing the money to be spent any way the city wants we've already heard some of the people who voted for LRT suggesting wow what a relief now we can now we can vote our conscience so you know that I I I think it's all about LRT. I, I think the mayor may be a, a little antsy in the sense that uh, not only do we have the Ford comment, but uh, we we have this poll that was released that while it shows 59% in favor of LRT, it was a poll that was, you know, half of the, the uh, sample was drawn from people along the route and the other 10 wards were represented by half of the other half of the sample so it's not it wasn't scientific to begin with but even less so with a with a sample drawing like that but, so but I, you know they're they're drawing a, a line in the sand here mm-hmm. and and I saw the initial tweet and and you're right I mean this is this is a question about councillor Skelly speaking out against LRT which by the way she's consistently done through this whole debate but yes. there was an insinuation I think in the first response from from the mayor back on Twitter that uh, the Doug Ford's commitment that you've already talked about uh, for the billion dollars you could have it anyway may well have been because of some, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, information that that he received from Councillor Skelly, uh, who's running, of course, for the PCs in the provincial election. Uh, and uh, obviously, I mean, Mr. Ford has shown a propensity for not knowing a whole lot about some of these issues. And of course, he uttered that when he was in town a few weeks ago. But based on what? And and there's a suggestion here that was, well, Councillor Skelly said if you offer this up, it's it's going to go over fabulously, etc. And, and I don't know whether that happened or not, but that seems to be the insinuation here. And that started the back and forth between the two of them. And I, I find it interesting. Obviously, Councillor Skelly's been consistent in her opposition. Uh, and, and as we get towards the municipal election, the way I'm looking at this right now, just from what I've seen on Twitter and some of the comments from the mayor in the last couple of days, John, is that uh, he's gone from being, in the last election in which he was elected mayor, he was the guy in the middle. You remember uh, Brad Clark was against LRT. He wanted bus rapid transit. Brian McCaddy was pro-LRT. And, and Fred Eisenberger, candidate at that time, said, well, let's study it. You know, it's citizens panel, all that sort of stuff. He's clearly made a decision now that he's going to be the champion for this project, and, and, and that's what he's going to run on for his re-election campaign. Well, he's got nowhere to go. I mean, and as far as Skelly having backroom conversations with their leader, um, I, I wonder what uh, you know what the emails between the mayor's office and Ted McMeekin's office and and Kathleen Wynn's office uh, would look like. So, I mean, everybody's entitled to. Uh, yeah, that's the kettle calling the pot black, isn't it? Well, it is, and I noticed in one of the tweets in the thread where 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 the mayor was alluding to the ten five vote again, suggesting that that somehow is chiseled in stone, and you know what this council's like. But then he says, "Not my decision, councils." Now that is, come on, I mean that's completely disingenuous. He's lobbied, he's done everything he can to get this uh, LRT project going, and to suggest that he's all of a sudden he's in the hands of council. Especially after the, you know, the only reason they got the 10-5 vote, frankly, was through a, a massive campaign that involved a certain amount of coercion. Uh, basically, it was you want to be the guy or the woman who who walks away from the billion dollars, 
And, you know, even, even Kathleen Wynne refused to get word for word drawn into that. That was mainly carried by Ted McMeekin. Uh, every time she was braced with a question, she would always kind of waffle a little bit. So, uh, you know, there, there's just a lot of silliness going on here in terms of uh, people name-calling. Interestingly enough, you notice that Skelly never rises to this. Uh, if you look at her Twitter account, um, she only tweet, tweets about uh, events in her ward, you know, just basic yeah, stuff. Yeah. She never gets into opinion. She never joins a thread. And I think that's a smart thing to do, and, and she's not going to take the bait on this one either. No, it's, it seems as if the mayor's using this as a platform to, to pretty much launch where he stands on this, which begs the question, I mean, you know, to go back to where we were at the beginning. Yesterday, of course, this was the first day that people could register uh, to run in the municipal election. Uh, and uh, there were a few folks up there that jumped in to, to run in some of the ward races, and that's interesting. Some folks we know, some we've never heard of. But I, I got to figure, John, that there's going to be at least one person who's going to challenge Mayor Eisenberger this time around, and it's going to be on the LRT issue. No question. Uh, it is the wedge issue, and, uh, you know, I, whoever is the potential challenger will allow them to make their own announcement in their own time. But um, I think we've all heard the rumors, and absolutely, um, LRT will be the wedge issue, and uh, I think we will finally get the most definitive poll on the issue that we can possibly get. Which which would probably explain why the mayor has come out so strongly on Twitter about this today. In other words, he wants to stake his ground as to where he is on this. Yeah, and and really he's got nowhere to go. And, and the other thing that, that may be causing a little bit of discomfort on this issue is if you, uh, if you listen to the clip from uh, Andrea Horvath uh, on your, I think it was your 8.30 news this morning, Listen to that thing very carefully. Um, I think, and I think I heard a clip last night in your news as well, where it sounds like she's saying she would support whatever council decides. Uh, she doesn't want to come out with it as her lead argument, but if you listen carefully, she's talking about increasing go service, and, and then she's talking about picking up 50% of the operating costs. But then when she gets talking about LRT, she says, well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll support the billion dollars. And I thought I heard the words, whatever council decides. I thought I heard that phrase in, in one of those clips. So now you, very interesting that you've got the two parties that are the most likely to form a government, um, both you know, having a similar view on LRT, possibly. I'm, I, I may be reading too much into it, but I think it's worthwhile to go back and re-listen to those sound bites. Yeah, but John, in all the elections you've covered, have you not noticed that uh, that that election calls tend to want to make just about every candidate try to at least reach a little bit toward the middle ground? Yeah, well, and and there's punishment for those who don't get there. I yeah, think. exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no question. No uh, I, question. I mean, obviously, for her to suggest something like that, if in fact that's where her head is these days, uh, is simply to say, look, at if it, you know if LRT is going to be the wedge issue, I'm flexible, uh, and and that seems to be what obviously uh, the PCs are saying at this stage right now, and and the liberals, as you say, well, they've tied their can to LRT one way or another, so they can't really fudge on that. Nor can no. the mayor at this stage. No. No, it's, uh, that's the one good thing that we have uh, heading into the municipal, and, and to some degree provincially, uh, is that, uh, you know, the issues, to me, are clearer than they've been uh, in a while, uh, certainly at the municipal level. Uh, they're very clear, and normally when, when new candidates are trying to run against incumbents, they, 
you know, they're at a disadvantage because they all they really can do is present their resume, if you will, and they can talk about what they're in favor of and what they're not. But it's it's basically what they're doing is presenting a trying to present a positive alternative to the incumbent. And uh, as a result, uh, nine times out of ten, that doesn't work because you know they're they're sort of in sync. Uh, you know, very seldom have we seen a race in Hamilton where the incumbent was the issue. Uh, it's almost always well. Here's my qualifications. You make the decision, and the voters tend to go in the more you know the more traditional mode, which is somebody whose name they already know. But to that extent, I mean, yeah, everybody who said, "Yeah, I'm going to lower taxes." Yada yada yada. Yeah, I'm going to make yep. transit service better. I'm going to fix our infrastructure deficit. And you're going to hear that from everybody. I get that. Which why I, I still think that LRT is going to be the issue. It's going to be the undercurrent. It's going to be the foundation for just about everything right now. And and, and I know that some people have said, well, yeah, we sort of had that election uh, back in the Danny versus Christofferson mayoral race a few years ago. But, but and I understand where Christofferson was anti-LRT and, and or, uh, Expressway and, and, and Larry Danny was pro. But, I mean, even had Christofferson won that race, he's only one vote on council. And, and I don't know that there would have been enough people to turn that around. But this, this LRT issue is very tenuous right now. And whoever ends up being the mayor after this election, is going to have a great deal of influence as to what's going to happen. Well, and the other thing uh, with this is very seldom, uh, I mean, we have had, as you mentioned, with that election, a wedge issue involving the mayoralty race, but now uh, people that are running for council, if you're running for council on the mountain, where you know, uh, based on that forum poll, which frankly is uh, the poll that I would pay attention to, uh, it's a proper sampling. It's weighted, and it shows a pretty clear plurality against uh, the the uh, LRT, especially outside of the lower city. Um, you're running up there. Uh, do you want to be vague about where you stand on LRT, or or do you want to make a clear statement? And and I think that's going to push, um, you know, definitely uh, Jackson and and Whitehead. I mean, they've already made some noises that suggest that they're willing to change their vote, but I think they're going to have to be very clear on it, uh, because if they're not, uh, the, the person running against them uh, certainly can seize that issue and, and, and be very clear. Well, uh, as somebody who did a little door knocking in my time, I can tell you that uh, even if they don't want to address that, it's the first question people are going to ask when they do knock on doors and looking for votes is, what, what's your stance? So they're going to have to come up with some kind of a policy. Well, and the other thing that uh, I know you're aware of, but just to remind uh, listeners, uh, if this thing comes up for another council vote after the election, it's it's uh, decided by a simple ma- majority. No longer is this two-thirds needed. It's going to be a simple majority uh, that will decide the issue. And uh, so Nine votes. That's all it takes nine, is nine, nine votes. Nine votes, and we'll see what happens. John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. It's starting to heat up, John. It sure is. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for this. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We've been talking and we'll continue to talk right up until June 7th about provincial election issues. And, and obviously things like carbon taxes are going to be there and taxes and lowering taxes, yada, 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 you know, the usual stuff. Healthcare is by far, in a way, the number one issue. Ask any 10 voters. Stop them at King and James today. What's the number one issue? They're going to tell you health care. 
Uh, and everybody who's running for office is going to probably talk about health care, but it's, if I can channel Mark Twain for a second, everybody talks about it. Nobody seems to be able to do much about it, uh, except this group. Uh, and uh, these folks have been at this for the longest time now, the Ontario Health Coalition. And uh, Natalie Mira is with us uh, to talk about health care and the issues. It's good to see you again. Thanks for coming in today. Uh, thanks for having us. What brings you into town? Well, we're doing a tour of Ontario. We're releasing our, what we call, election platform, the group of ideas mm-hmm. and and our demands, really, of politicians. And we're going to measure the, the politicians' proposals and plans and promises against this and really try and set some key issues leading into the election in the public interest. Which is what we need to see. And it very nicely ties in with what I was talking about just before we broke for news and you guys joined us in here. Is, is we need voters to, to have a, a, a keen eye. Uh, it's easy to fall for the rhetoric and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I mean, for instance, uh, can you name a politician in the last 15 years that has not promised to reduce wait times? They all do. Uh, it's not working yeah. so well. Uh, but you guys take an objective look at all of these ideas and say, well, this might work, this might not work, et cetera. And it's, it's, it's key, I think, into educating voters. Yeah, and I think at this point we're really at a pivotal time in health care. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done this now for 18 years, uh, and 23, I was on the board for five years before, and I've seen sort of all, you know, different different governments of different stripes and the crisis of the 1990s and so on, and I really have to say that, that we are in a crisis now. We're in a very serious crisis in Hamilton, as in every large town across Ontario. The hospital is packed to overflowing. There are, well, they're you know, overcapacity in many right. cases. That's right. They're running at 100 to, you know, in London, 165% capacity. That means every bed is full at 100%. And so are some of the hallways. That's right. Safe level is 85%, by the way. So there are patients on stretchers and hallways. The emergency room backs up because there are no beds to admit pe- people into. The wards are all full. It means that ambulances are taken off the road. They can't, the paramedics can't leave their patients at the emergency department because there's no staff to take them because the emergency department is full to overflowing. So they're taken off the road for hours at a time in what they call offload delays. So you get code zero out on the road. There's not enough ambulances out in the community or there's no ambulances on the road. It's a crisis all through the system. Now they've got patients, you know, in in storage closets and broom closets and bathrooms waiting for days for beds because the bed cuts in Ontario are the most severe in the industrialized world. I mean, we're the worst in Canada. We have the fewest beds left. We're right at the bottom of the entire developed world. All our peer countries have more beds than us. The only countries we could find with fewer beds are Turkey and uh, uh, Chile and Mexico. Sorry. Why is this happening? Because when you look at the numbers here, and and again, I'll, I'll set the political rhetoric aside, though, but you know, Natalie, I think it's 53 cents out of every tax dollar that we pay in Ontario goes to health care, more than half. And you'd think, well, gee whiz, why? we must have one of the best systems in the world. We don't. No, well, so they're throwing money at it, and, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Matter of fact, as you just articulated, it seems to be getting worse. Well, it's interesting because they talk about throwing money at it, but but healthcare funding is often used as a political football, and it's always overstated. Healthcare funding 
as a percentage of the provincial budget has actually been declining ever since I started. It's now down to like between 47 and 48 cents. Actually, it's, it's less than half of the budget. And, um, and hospital funding in particular is very low in Ontario. In fact, hospital funding by every measure, that's per person as a percentage of our provincial GDP or economic output, as a percentage of, you know, the budget, et cetera, it is the lowest in the country. Every other province funds their hospitals better than we do. That's why we're in this situation. So there's a question about where is the money going, you know, not to our public hospitals anymore. They've they've been cut literally for 40 years, almost without respite now. And we also are ra- very seriously rationing long-term care. That's nursing homes. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that because yeah. when we say health care, I'm sure that many of our listeners, the, the, the thing that's thought that's conjured up in their mind is a hospital. And, yeah. and, I, and I can understand that, primary care, et cetera. But there's so many other elements to health care in this province, yeah. uh, including long-term care facilities, uh, yeah. including uh, hospice care. I mean, there's so many different things that's right. that, that have to be in place. And if they're not, all the pressure falls on the hospital, which is why you're seeing overcapacity. And we don't hear that wholesome discussion at the political level too often. No, and I sometimes it's used really for a cover as a cover yeah. for cuts. But right now, the the most recent data for Ontario says that there are thirty four thousand people on wait lists for long term care beds. That's nursing home beds. So there's about eighty thousand beds. That's a huge, and so we need to address that without question. And so we're saying this election. We have to make these an issue. It's This is not the time for cuts. If anyone's promising you health care cuts, that's really a huge problem for people. I mean, it means that people have to pay out of pocket when they're sick, when they're elderly, when they're least able to actually work or, or fund their health care needs. You know, it means that people have long waits. It means more of a crisis in our hospitals and in our long-term care system. We actually need to rebuild capacity now. We need a plan to stabilize the funding for the next number of years. We need a plan to rebuild capacity to actually meet the need. In a public health care system, the core job is to measure and try and meet population need for care. That's what the system is supposed to do, and it's not doing it in Ontario. And people really should be appalled and really have to raise their voices about it. The fact that people are, you know, waiting for days on stretchers and hallways, there's no surge capacity if there's a flu or a trauma. You know, the incident on Young Street in Toronto, mm-hmm. Sunnybrook Hospital was completely full. Every bed in the ICU was full. They had to move patients out of the ICU to make room for those people uh, to come in. There's no surge capacity whatsoever in our hospitals. It's not safe. One of the problems, as as I see it, and I know you've toured all over the province talking with people about this, is that in as much as we all say that healthcare is is the number one priority for us, uh, education may be just slightly behind that. We don't really pay much attention to it unless we need it, until we need it, yeah. until all of a sudden uh, we have to go to an ER or somebody gets ill or all of a sudden uh, one of our loved ones has to have surgery and we find out how ridiculous the wait times are, even to go see a specialist about some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden we become outraged, but mm-hmm. there's not enough of us that are outraged to make anything happen about this. I think we've gotten used to expecting less, yeah. expecting diminishing returns. and. 
and people are, I think, very polite and very Canadian about <laughs> things. But the truth is nowhere in the world do people put up with waiting on a stretcher for eight days under bright lights without food being provided to them, without adequate help to get to the bathroom, without their medication being given up, without adequate staffing to provide for their basic needs. No privacy. I mean, over Christmas, I was quite ill, ended up in emergency a bunch of times. Every time I was there, I was in a hallway in a hospital gown with, you know, dozens and dozens of people walking by me, my treatment out in the public, discussing my health issues out in that. That's what normal conditions are. And it really, it's not acceptable. And really, it isn't the way anyone else runs. Ontario is an extreme outlier by every measure. Like, no one else runs their health system this way. And we can actually change it. I mean, we've got, what, five weeks to a provincial election. Mm -hmm. If we're going to win, you know, commitments to change policy, this this lies at the feet of the provincial government. They plan the public health care system. Then we have to demand of our politicians that they do something about it. There's there's a whole lot of factors at play here that that I find very frustrating over the years and and I, I'm old enough although I was a kid uh, back in the 1960s when when the Medicare program started and and back in those days of course uh, it was 50 50 the federal government paid 50 percent and the provinces kicked in the rest or most of the rest anyway uh, the federal contribution I think is about 17 percent now something like that it's it's ridiculous it went back up again so they they started refunding in. Um, uh, between around 2004, and they and they've actually caught. They're back up to about 24 percent or wow. so. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I hope we're not supposed to be impressed by that. No, but that is a significant gain from where they were. Yeah, in, you sure, know, sure. When they were down at 14. Baby you know? steps. Okay. That's right. But there's that, and I also remember the discussion at the time uh, in in the mid 60s when they initiated this program, and they said, "Oh, by the way, and PharmaCare is going to be part of this too, but we're going to wait a couple of years." Well, that was 1964. It's yeah. 2018. We're still waiting. Yeah. So PharmaCare drug, which is extending which is part of the healthcare, healthcare yes, to cover drugs, needed drugs for people, so needed medications. And actually, you know, interestingly, it's come around again, and it's really kind of. Right at near the top of the public agenda at the national level, there's been a parliamentary budget committee that has reviewed, you know, models and has priced out models to bring in health. Closest we've come to winning it is, drug it coverage is. in all of my decades of doing this and, you know, probably since the 60s when they first talked yeah. about it. So we're on the cusp. I think at this point the question is not whether or not we're going to get some form of expanded drug coverage for Canadians, but, you know, whether it'll be kind of a piecemeal program, which may actually be a little bit worse in terms of being more expensive um, than the current system or or a full-on proper public drug program. And, and we're having that debate here in Ontario in this campaign. I mean, yeah. you know, the Liberals and NDP have both come up with variations on that's right. on what they want to do here. And there's some differences there. And, and, and I'm glad that's up on, on the platform now to be debated, but it's still something that's important. Mm -hmm. do, do we take a backwards approach to this, though, Natalie? I mean, you just talked about the, how the, the the lack of funding over the system has has caused the system to actually shrink, whether it's, uh, uh, and we haven't even talked about home care, but I mean, there's long-term care beds. There are some people that want to stay in their homes. Uh, in you know in retirement, uh, but can't necessarily because they don't have the support services because of home care right. cutbacks in that area too. So there's a whole long so list of priorities. Home care actually has expanded in Ontario quite dramatically, um, and the funding has expanded. But then the but because of the very severe offloading of hospital patients and long-term care rationing rationing of access to nursing home beds by just not providing enough beds, um, home care roles have have ballooned. So 
So per client, per home care client, funding now is just slightly more than it was in 2002, but the complexity has gone up. So home care, unlike long-term care homes and hospitals, has actually seen some funding increases Real, you know, real. Yeah, but real the numbers terms. are still there. The numbers are larger. That's right. And, and but the wait lists are still exist for sure for home care. And, and the elementary problem, of course, is there are too many people in hospitals that really shouldn't be there, but there are no other facilities for them. Well, nowadays, I mean, if you if they can move you out, they move you out. Yeah. You're not oh, there for very long. So, so really, mostly. Uh, people who are in hospitals now really need to be in hospitals, or they may be assessed as needing long-term care, but there are no beds available. There, therein lies That's the problem. Right. But why don't we take a different approach? And I'm just throwing this out there because as, as we study other areas, and I know mm-hmm. that back in those halcyon days of the 60s when this, this system came in, we prided ourselves in having the best health care in the world. We don't anymore. We, we have to come to that realization. Uh, the UK does it better. Uh, Scandinavian countries do it better than we do. But they take a different approach. They simply say, okay, here's what we need. We need this, we need this, we need this, we need this. Here's the bill. All right, now this is what it's going to cost. In North America, and especially here in Canada, we do the opposite. We simply say, that's as much money as we can afford to put into health care. So you guys decide where you want to put it. Yeah. It's, it's a backwards approach. It's no wonder we're failing. No, I agree with you. I mean, one of the things we're saying is this election, we have to ask for a rebuilding of the health system. Yeah. And we need to have a, an honest and mature discussion about how we're going to raise revenues for that, um, how we're going to pay for that. Because the bottom line is we're going to pay for health care, whether we get it privately or whether we get it publicly. The problem with having to pay for it privately is that you you pay for it when you're sick, when you're old, when you're dying the times in your life when you're least able to pay, and, and the costs on an individual basis are just far too high for people to bear. But it was designed in 1964 with a model that represented and I think reflected our society at that time. Yeah. But males usually lived to about 73 back in those days. You retired at 65, You were usually within 10 years you had gone on to and, and left this mortal coil. That was, <laughs> and that was, but now we're living longer. Yeah, uh, and are, working longer. Yeah, and working longer. Uh, but we all know that you know when you get on the north side of sixty, healthcare costs increase because you tend to go to and need healthcare more often, whether it's for joint replacements or whatever. I mean, there've been some fabulous innovations in healthcare, yeah. but they're costly. The model that we designed in nineteen sixty four does not fit in 2018. I mean, we need to really, I think, not tweak this, but we need to look at not just the funding model, but the, the way we deliver health care. And we haven't really so. had that debate. I think we really have to, I, I mean, one of the things that my family doctor likes to talk to me about is that really the need for talking about how you want to plan your the end of end of life oh, yeah, care. Yeah. How much intervention do you want? You know, how, because a lot of people are subject to a lot more intervention than they would really want. Um, and it does not improve the quality of their lives and so on. I mean, there are things like that that can be done for sure, not about saving money, but actually about improving care. Mm -hmm. There are other things that can be done, you know, um, controlling over-prescribing of medications that, and, you know, lead seniors to emergency rooms unnecessarily, you know, controlling unnecessary tests and procedures, which the government is actually moving on uh, quite a bit now. But in addition to that, we also need to say, wait a minute, we don't have enough capacity left here. We've cut too deeply and we need to restore capacity. Just basic planning. You know, the last time a bed study was done in Ontario, by bed I mean a funded bed, right? That Mm -hmm. means staff for the bed. The wards are still there. 
The beds, you know, physically are there, but there's no funding to provide the staffing for them. The operating rooms are there in the large hospitals, but, you know, in every large hospital, you'll see operating rooms closed for weeks or months or closed down entirely uh, because they're not funded. Well, well, there's burgeoning surgical wait lists. I mean, what we have to do is restore the funding to build the capacity for care. I know we're just about out of time here. I, I can still remember an example years ago when I was on the, the District Health Council here in the city. Oh, this, is, this is going back yeah. about 15, 16 years ago. And we were all joyous about the fact that the province had allowed, allocated money for a new MRI for Hamilton. This is great. And one of the members put their hand up and said, uh, where's the funding to operate it? Well, well, we don't have that. Uh, you know, <laughs> politicians, you know, not getting the whole picture. Listen, you're in town. How can people get in touch with you? Because I'm sure everybody is going to have some input into this, and they're going to want to listen to what you have to say and maybe come up with some ideas. Oh, we would love to hear them. Well, you get, people can go to our website, and then they can contact us through our website or email or on Facebook. Um, so uh, our website is just Ontario Health Coalition. .ca, all one word. You guys do great work. I'm glad you're in town today, and I know we're uh, going to hear thanks. a lot more from you about between now and June 7th and beyond. You do great work, too, so thank you very <laughs> much for having us. Good to see you again, Take Natalie. Care. Natalie Mara from the Ontario Health Coalition. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, MPs in Ottawa voted nearly unanimously to call on Pope Francis to uh, issue a formal apology for the residential schools that were run in Canada uh, it's uh, well, the church is. Uh, he, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, the church is is complicit in this. As uh, Tim Harper writes about, uh, Tim of course is a freelance writer and editor. He got a great piece that's uh, in the uh, Toronto Star today called "A Good Day for Parliament, A Bad Day for the Church." And uh, Tim, thanks for uh, joining us on the program. Great to have you back here today. Good morning, Bill. How are you doing? It's good. This is listen. This is unusual for the the first of all any sense of unanimity. I know a few folks decided to vote against this motion, but but this is one of the few times you you see this this nonpartisan approach to something. Yeah, it uh, and it was debated late last week. The vote was yesterday, but the debate, the tenor of the debate, uh, was quite impressive as well. I mean, um, you had MPs uh, speaking from the heart, and you had a. Uh, um, a couple of them, uh, a conservative, Kathy McLeod from British Columbia, uh, and a, a new Democrat from British Columbia, Rachel Blaney, speaking of, of personal experience with regi- residential schools. Um, uh, McLeod, who's the indigenous critic for the uh, the, the conservatives, um, really uh, really spoke from the heart. She was a nurse uh, in a, a northern British Columbia First Nations community, and she saw firsthand um you know, the legacy of the residential schools and the problems with um, uh, addiction and suicide and so on. So you don't usually get debate um, that, that cuts that close to the heart. And as you mentioned, um, it cut right across party lines. There were 10 conservatives who decided to vote against it, but it had the support of the entire Liberal government. Uh, uh, the NDP, of course, Charlie Angus was the MP who introduced the motion. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth May from the Green, what's the, what's left of the Bloc uh, Québécois, and they all voted uh, for it, 269 to 10. So you, you're right, you don't see that very often in Ottawa. Let me ask you, and I don't want you to try to get inside the head of the Pope in a situation like this, or, or what's going on in the Vatican, <laughs> but why not? Uh, I'm, as, as you point out in the piece today, Tim, uh, the Pope has issued apologies for other parts of the world for some questionable behavior and, 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 and activities. I don't honestly know, Bill, which won't surprise you. Um, the Pope wasn't returning calls yesterday, but I will. I, know, I know you would have tried, but okay. <laughs> um, my my best theory is that the, the problem is, is probably not at the Vatican. The problem 
appears to be with the Canadian Catholic bishops who uh, this is not the first time that they've been pushed on this question and um, and demurred, so to speak. Uh, they um, they seem uh, consumed with defending the church, um, discussing the the Catholic Church structure in the country, so that the, the the you know the Catholic Church shouldn't have to apologize for this because these were entities of the of the Catholic Church. Um, they, they they split hairs. They they held a press conference in Ottawa last week. A number of them, and uh, frankly, I got to be honest, it was just all doublespeak, um, and um, they didn't do themselves any favors. So, if there's a if there's a problem, uh, I think it rests with the bishops in Canada more so than the Vatican. But of course, uh, it's the bishops in Canada uh, in Canada who would have to uh, reach out to the Pope. Um, he has been invited, uh, Pope Francis, to come to Canada, and there's an indication, perhaps, on the, within the next couple of years, uh, he will. But um, I, I found the, the, wor- the wording from the bishops was, was quite, um, Charlie Angus called it appalling. It was quite puzzling, because they, they used the, the terminology that the Pope cannot personally respond, yet they didn't do a very good job, actually, of explaining what that meant. Yeah, but may the, that may well be because they don't want to personally respond. And, and, and again, I'm... I can't understand the rationalization that the, the, the bishops, the Canadian bishops, are using in a situation like this. Uh, I, this, this is this is a, a travesty of, of Canadian history, and we know that we understand that from the political standpoint. Uh, I think there's been an opportunity or a, a, a chance, anyway, to try to make retribution for this. But the church was, let's face it, I, whether they want to admit it or not, Tim, the Catholic Church was complicit in this. Uh, well, even the bishops don't say, uh, don't deny that. But they, again, I get back to that question of it was Catholic entities. They say not the church uh, as a whole. Uh, but they're not doing anything. Um, if they were worried about a public relations problem with the church by um, issuing, uh, having the Pope come over here and, and issue a, a heartfelt apology, I would argue that they're that they're they're making it worse because um, they. The Catholic Church now stands alone of, of all religious denominations that were involved in that dark period in Canadian history at the residential schools. Only the Catholic Church has failed to issue a, an apology, and only the Catholic Church actually has failed to meet its financial obligations under a 2006 residential school um, uh, agreement that was broken by the courts. So they, they um, I think, as I wrote, I think they should be embarrassed, um, and I think that was one of the um, one of the offshoots of this motion uh, was to shine the light on the Catholic Church in this country and and the reticence to um, uh, come to the table, as Charlie Angus put it. They, they they've got to uh, they've got to man up, and uh, in my view, and in the view, I guess, of 269 MPs, um, and. Um, and, and do the right thing here, and they're not doing it. Well, and we've seen this happen in other areas and other jurisdictions, and you touched on some of them, obviously, the Irish victims of sexual abuse. Uh, the Pope has apologized for that. Uh, the indigenous people of the Americas uh, for the colonialism that uh, that had an impact on them, obviously. And, and we can go down through the list of history, and, and I can't understand why the Catholic bishops don't understand this. I mean, it's not as if they're pointing the finger and saying it's all your fault. It was the fault of the people that ran the church at the time, and uh, they seem to, to just want to say there's nothing going on here. Well, there was, and, and there's still an impact. And I think you wrote about it in the piece today, Tim. Some of the people that spoke about this in the Commons yesterday have firsthand knowledge of the impact that it had. Absolutely. They, it's, not, it's not in the abstract. No, it, well, it's, it's certainly not. And, and particularly given the tenor of the times when there was so much um, 
more um, uh, attention given to the uh, rightly so to uh, historical injustices among uh, that have been um, perpetrated on Indigenous Canadians. The, the, the church is really uh, clearly swimming against the tide. You know, they were asked at that press conference at the end of April, uh, uh, flat out, uh, why uh, why an apology for the uh, the Irish victims, but not the, the Canadian victims? And one of the bishops actually used the term that the the um, the request in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission number, number fifty eight that calls on the Pope to apologize, he said was was uh, too narrow um, because it involved travel and and how uh, complicated it would be to you know get all the travel arrangements and, and uh, the, the the Pope's um, schedule and so on, and it, it just it seemed tone deaf. It, it actually didn't answer the question, but. The, the rationale just sounded uh, completely politically tone-deaf to anybody listening to it, I would think. But but their attitude, and, and, and as some of the things that they've said, as you pointed out in the piece today, it, it, it's almost as if they don't see that there's any culpability here, as if they said, look, at this this was no big deal, which which raises questions about their attitude. I mean, has it changed over the, the last couple of generations at all? I'd like to think it has, but we're not hearing that. Well, it does appear as if they, they, they're almost wantonly revising history, but it's been... Uh, meticulously documented uh, by uh, uh, Murray Sinclair, the senator who was the, uh, the the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I don't think there's any rational thinking Canadians out there anymore who, who uh, except, well, Senator Lynn Bayak, but that's another conversation. Yeah. But there's nobody out there defending the residential schools. Um, I think there's a, a complete awareness of this. Um, and, you know, uh, if I was... <laughs> If I was a, a, a media damage control person, I, I, I think I'd sit down with the bishops and say, look, uh, you're shooting yourself in the foot here. Uh, it's not going to go away, Bill, because um, Carolyn Bennett, who, as you know, is the uh, liberal minister for um, uh, indigenous relations, um, she's going to write the bishops again uh, with the results of this vote, um, asking them to... Uh, uh, take the next step forward, as she put it, and, and try to uh, uh, arrange a meeting. She wants the, the bishops to meet firsthand with some of the survivors to see if that will uh, will, will change attitudes uh, and move things along. I think that's probably a good idea. So, you know, that's going to be their next decision. I don't think they can be put in a position of refusing to meet with survivors. So um, the pressure will continue. I, I think it's just a shame. I think it's a travesty that it's taken a, a vote in the House of Commons and pressure from a uh, the federal cabinet minister to try to get the church to do the right thing. You would think the church would, uh, on its own, uh, look at the circumstances and decide on its own that it has to do the right thing without being pressured. I mean, I, I really don't want to start to relive this, although I know some of the speakers that talked about this who, who like I say, had first-hand experience did talk about some of these examples. But this is, this is Tim, this is like talking to people that come back from Afghanistan suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. They, you know, as soon as they try to talk about it, you can see that they start to get upset, they start to quiver. I mean, went, and I guess it's because of the reality of what happened. The, the bishops seem, as you mentioned, to be tone deaf to, that these children were taken from their homes. They were basically told, forget about your heritage, forget about your families. Uh, this is the way you're going to live your life from here on in. And, and you know, we talk about PSTSD, and, and when it comes to that, what about these kids? What about the people that, that survived that or some that didn't survive it? Uh, and we haven't even talked about those numbers. I mean, I can't understand how the bishops could actually just turn their heads away from something like that. I've uh, I've talked, as I'm sure you have, to survivors who 
uh, as as they try to describe what happened or their memories actually just uh, get too emotional and can't talk about it. There is a new Democrat by the name of Romeo Saganash, uh, a new Democrat from um, Quebec. And the, I thought he was most eloquent because he, he seconded the motion. And he rose last week in the House uh, to essentially explain why he hadn't asked for a speaking slot as the seconder of the motion. And he said, uh, uh, the reason for that is, is pretty simple. I've gone to residential schools 10 years in my case. When people are being invited to speak about that experience, they're being invited to relive the trauma. I was not prepared to do that. I do not think I am capable of doing that. Um, you know, that, to, my, to, my, to me, that spoke volumes. And, um, you know, I, I got to know Romeo Sagan actually a little bit over the uh, years in, uh, in Ottawa. And he's a, he's a man of great uh, integrity and sincerity, but he has quite, been quite open about the scars that have been left on him from uh, his years uh, going to residential schools. So, you know, there's a lot of walking wounded out there, no doubt. And again, I just want to establish the protocol for our listeners. I mean, I, this is, I don't necessarily know if this is the Vatican saying no or simply taking their lead from the Canadian bishops, uh, who I'm sure are, are going to be sitting here and have probably sat in an advisory capacity and said, don't worry about it, you don't need to do this. Uh, you know, the Vatican, I don't think, has their finger on exactly what's happening here. But I mean, this is, as you mentioned, an issue that's not going to go away. And and when you you put the pieces together... You've got the bishops who are speaking in this fashion. You've got uh, their refusal to, to ask for this apology from the Pope. Uh, you mentioned the money, which, by the way, they had an obligation to raise $25 million for healing programs for these survivors. They only raised 3.7 and said, well, that's all we can do. Sorry. The, the, you know, Tim, it wouldn't be much of a stretch for, for anybody who looked at all of this body of evidence to say they don't really care. They don't really seem to understand the gravity of what happened. Well, you know, you mentioned the $25 million that they were supposed to raise, uh, and they, they, they have always maintained that, um, that they had given it their best shot, that, that you know, they were supposed to, the wording was a bit uh, mealy-mouthed, and that they were supposed to use best efforts to raise $25 million. Um, they raised 3.7, as you said, and said, essentially, sorry, that was, that was the best effort we could make. I'd suggest that maybe um, this would be a good time to uh, redouble those efforts and, uh, and and go out and, and try to fundraise again for this. It's it's certainly something that uh, members of the Catholic Church are well aware of, and I'm sure they would uh, be in a giving mood. But um, to your, your your point about the the Vatican not being aware, I think the the Vatican was very has been very well aware of this. Uh, don't don't forget Justin Trudeau went there uh, and uh, personally asked the uh, the Pope. Mm-hmm. Um, to come and apologize. It was raised rather indirectly by Stephen Harper uh, in 2015 with the Pope. Uh, the Pope's very well aware of the situation here, and the bishops have uh, uh, have uh, conceded that point. Uh, I don't think the Pope actually needed to, you know, uh, tune into um, uh, CPAC to watch the vote yesterday. I think he knows, uh, has been told what's going on here. So I think the uh, the... The, the bottleneck is with the bishops here, and uh, you know they're get, they're quickly getting themselves in a situation where you know if this apology from the Pope ever does happen, um, you'd hate to have it look like it's a it's a grudging trip over here uh, under pressure. I'm not you know I'm not saying you can pressure the Pope, but if it becomes a major controversy here, then you know the, the, the Church has clearly failed to get out ahead of it. Um, there, there will always, I suppose, be questions about the sincerity of the apology. And and there are always going to be, I guess, differences, and and we saw that happen with the civil marriage debate that happened back around two thousand five, 
uh, where the church was quite vocal in their 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 problems with the, you know the the Martin government at that time trying to move forward on that. Uh, there's the assisted death thing, and I know the church has had a strong position on that. Yep. But this is not policy, Tim. This is a human rights issue. Yeah, and you have um, some of the dissenters um, talking about you know the, the church versus state in, in this case, and that parliamentarians should not be telling the, the church how to deal with reconciliation. Um, I, I don't buy that for a second. This wasn't church versus state. This was uh, uh, parliamentarians doing their job on on, uh, on a moral issue and, and uh, doing it quite well, in my view. So you, you, you're right. The, the church can't have the church certainly intervenes or raises um, its views uh, on uh, legislation uh, that is being debated in Ottawa. Oh, sure. I mean, come on. I mean, that's a rather sanctimonious position to take. I mean, in 2005, when the civil marriage law was going, remember there was an election that year. And I can tell you here in the Hamilton area, I mean, uh, the Catholic priests read a letter from the pulpit the Sunday before the election telling people not to vote for parties that supported that. Well, (laughs) that's getting involved in politics. Yeah, so I, my point being, I didn't make it very well. If you're uh, one of those 10 conservative MPs and you don't think that the, the state should be telling the church what to do, uh, I don't hear any of those people telling the church to stay out of political debates when the, when the church wants to get involved. So, I mean, there's there's crossover all the time, and the church has... Uh, in my Obviously, the church has every right uh, to inject its views in uh, a parliamentary debate. Uh, but then don't don't turn around and vote against this because well you know we're going to tell the church what to do. I mean I, I, that that may be a, 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 a heartfelt principle to stand for um, some of these MPs, but uh, I, I, as I say, I don't buy it. This is as you mentioned not a binding uh, motion that passed uh, in Parliament. Uh, what 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 are the next steps? Uh, I mean, do they insist on this? Do they you know strong letter to follow? I mean, what happens here? Um, yeah, it, this is. Uh, Going to be communicated uh, directly with the uh, with the Vatican, as far as I know. Um, um, and uh, Carolyn Bennett is going to follow up with the bishops, but uh, it's not binding. You're, you're right; it carries no legal weight, but it sure carries a lot of moral weight, uh, if you ask me. Uh, back to what we were talking about off the top about uh, partisan uh, concerns being uh, shifted aside for this. So, uh, this vote is. You know, I, I I don't like to use words like historic and so on. It may be unprecedented, though. I, I'm not sure that a, a Parliament of Canada has, has ever um, come together like this to, um, uh, not, if not take on a church, uh, shine a light on uh, uh, the hypocrisy of a church. Although they won't tell you that's what this motion was all about. But you know, take a take a read of it and listen to the debate. And yeah, that, that that's exactly what this motion is all about. There was a lot of deference actually. During, during the debate about, you know, we would like to invite the Pope, we're only asking the Pope. Uh, but, you know, when, when push comes to shove, this was uh, this really did shine the light on the, on the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church. Yeah, you're right, and the message out is clear. It's a great piece in the Star today. People want to check it out and get some background on this. Tim, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Enjoy the chat, Bill. Thanks for calling. Take care. Tim Harper, of course, freelance writer and editor. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.